are you looking to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? Fortunately, there's an easy solution from the podcast sponsor, Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians. I've made it easy to check out Medici with a link in the show notes, or you can head over to their website, medici.md, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app. Send or receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid, which is always a wonderful thing, for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Ready to go virtual? Visit Medici.md, that's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D, or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. And with that, here's the show. Welcome to the Veterinarian Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We're back with another radio show. So Dan Routh is here. Dan, thanks for coming back on and chatting with me. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me back on. Good to be here. Like a lot of people going slightly insane, going on month, what is it? Two and a half, three now being inside. But other than that, thankful things are going well. Everyone's healthy. Yeah. And I know today, so if you're listening to this, you obviously saw the title, Investing 101. We wanted to talk about just the concepts of investing. And there's a lot of nuance to it. Dan and I, I think from a high level, have very, very similar views. We probably have some different views if you get really into the nitty gritty. But one of the reasons we want to talk about this is we both kind of came across different stats. And I'll share mine first, which was this article, well, not really a subset of an article from CNBC that someone tweeted talking about a boom in retail trading, which is just kind of the average American deciding they wanted to invest or do different things in the market. And so it was talking about like TD Ameritrade had over 300,000 new accounts in a month. E-Trade had 150,000 new accounts and Schwab had 50,000 new accounts, which is growth for all of them, like much higher than normal. And then it had talked about Robinhood as well, which is another application out there. And Dan, you had a tweet that you saw, I think actually that was either earlier today or recently as well. Yeah. And it pretty much had a similar story just showing compared the S&P 500 just over the last 15 years and just looking at trading activity. You know, it's a steady increase over the last 15 years. But when you compare it to the trading activity in a bunch of retail brokerages, S&P 500 alone versus the total trading at various brokerage houses. This one looked at uh, E-Trade and TD Ameritrade and a few others. It's essentially a flat line. If you were to compare two graphs, look at the S&P performance versus like a treasury bill, one's going up, one's staying flat. This looks exactly the same, except for the last month. And over the last month, it looks like the opposite of the jobs report. It's going straight up just exponentially. And it's a bunch of people who are out there opening an account for the first time, or they have cash on the sideline, they're trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. So that's the backdrop of kind of having this conversation. And again, it's something that you can make it as simple or as complex as you want. I don't think overly simplistic ways of doing things is best. I don't think really trying to add a bunch of complexity that you can't do anything yourself is the right answer as well. So we'll try to hash that out in something that is actionable that you can think about and hopefully have a conversation whether you are someone that does it yourself. If you work with an advisor, if you're just thinking about what do I do, you'll have that. So at the highest level, if we start from the beginning, Dan, how do you think about just investing 101, the basics? I mean, obviously, there's so many different ways to look at this. 
so many different variables depending on your goals, your age, your risk tolerance. The few things, and we can go through them and talk about yours, but I look at risk tolerance as one main factor. Obviously, you need to be able to sleep at night. So your investments need to be tied to the fact that how much risk you can actually tolerate. Diversification, that's a pillar of any investment strategy. There's a lot of different ways to be a successful investor. Some people make great arguments for one and not the other. But diversification is usually a factor of that. And that's diversification in stocks, diversification in bonds, uh, however you set it up. Costs, I always consider costs. It's not the only thing or the most important thing in investing, but it's one of the few things you can control. So we always try and make sure we can at least limit costs. And then matching your time horizon. Again, it goes back to age. Super, super important, especially if you're trying to invest for different goals, maybe buying a house, saving for retirement, sending your kids to college, and then having a set rebalancing schedule to whatever schedule you set it up, maybe once or twice a year, and having a systematic way of doing it. We can kind of break those down, but how do those, I guess, compared to yours, Isaiah? Are those similar? Do you have any others to add? Or I think if you think about the different pillars, you touched on all of them that matter. So I won't necessarily rehash that. And I think the diversification piece is where it's difficult for people to think about diversification because I've seen statements from clients or potential clients that are hundreds of pages long with all these different things in them. And if you break it down, I was able to break it down and it made up basically six things. So you could buy six individual investments and it'd be the same thing as hundreds of pages of all these different things. So when you think about diversification, I think the key is to understand diversification is basically at the root of it. Something is going to do well in one environment and it might not do well in another. But if you blend them together, you're going to get to something that is actually much better. Think about it. I always kind of explain it. Think about a recipe. So if you have all the different ingredients out and you just eat them one by one, not going to be great, especially when you get to like baking soda, let's say. Not going to enjoy that. No, chocolate chip cookies, you're going to like that. But if you have too much of it, obviously that's an issue as well. So I try to think about if you get good ingredients around for whatever you need from the investment standpoint, that can get you to where you want. And when you have true diversification, it makes something beautiful. And the other thing that I really, really like is thinking about investing from the standpoint of it being similar to medical sciences, right? So there's a great book called The Behavioral Investor from Dr. Daniel Crosby. And I trot out this quote and talk about this quote all the time because I think it's really, really, really good about thinking about how you should think about investing, which is any investment solution should be thought of as something that's empirically supported, theoretically sound, and behaviorally stringent. So is there some basis behind why you do something? If you own three different things, is there a reason why you own those? Like, is there support behind that? So when you think about veterinary medicine, you're not going to go in and say, you know what, today, I think I'm going to do it this way. Or my neighbor told me to do it this way. No, you're going to say, this is what I learned. This is the evidence behind why I have this treatment plan. This is why we do this. You know, building out something gets to the end result, which is a pet getting healthy or whatever you're trying to accomplish. And investing should be thought of the same way. And so I think there are certain building blocks from that standpoint that do fit those criteria that then can help someone get to where they want to go. Yeah, the cooking analogy hits at home. That's a good one. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, I mean, you know, Isaiah, when you're thinking about if you had somebody who's brand new to investing, maybe they aren't financial planning ready. You and I talk about that a lot. This would be especially somebody who is probably right out of school. Maybe they are got their first 401k plan. They have some money. They're trying to start reading about it, start learning about it. What are some of the things 
along these lines that you would point out of ways to learn about it or go about starting? And we're talking about investing and we both agree from the financial planning standpoint, all these other things are way more important and can have more value, but we want to stay focused on the investing standpoint. I think the easiest way to think about investing is to take out and understand that every single human has biases. So Dan and I both have biases. Anyone listening to this has their own biases. And one of the biggest biases that we see typically is most investors want to own things they understand and know, which is let's buy the United States. And you laugh because we've had this conversation so many different times. And it's true. Most investors in the United States own about 75 or 80% of US either stocks, bonds, real estate, whatever asset class you want to talk about. And if you think about the global market, so just everything out there, the investable market, stocks, bonds, real estate, everything together, the US makes up about 45 to 50%. So if you have your 401k plan, and they're not always going to give you all the options to build out everything that you and I might love to do and tinker with. But at the basis, try to think if you've done your risk tolerance, which there's a really good free tool from Vanguard. Again, I think risk tolerance are a little bit of a kind of cover your butt from an advisor perspective. And I think that a conversation really needs to happen behind that because I've had people that have told me I'm really aggressive. And that's not necessarily true once things start happening. Great starting point, but that's just it. It is. It's a great starting point to have a conversation. But if you utilize some sort of risk tolerance, so again, I would encourage people to check out Vanguard's, then you can go in and say, okay, Vanguard or talking to someone else or my advisor or whoever told me I need to have this kind of risk approximately. Take that and go into your 401k and then try to figure out what it looks like from there. So if you ever want to just Google the global market portfolio, different things will come up and it can give you a really good allocation. The hard thing about a podcast is saying, this is exactly the right allocation for every single person because it's really hard because I don't know your situation. But let's say hypothetically, your risk profile came back and it was 70% stocks and 30% bonds. If you were going to own the global market portfolio, it'd be about 30% in the US stock market, 25% international stocks, 10% emerging markets, about 10 to 15% US bonds, 10 to 15% in international bonds, and then some real estate and probably some gold. That would be kind of the global market portfolio. It can tilt and tweak different things, but that would be if you were going to have 70% in stocks and about 30% in bonds on average. Like that gives you kind of the idea of what the global market portfolio could look like. But again, I would encourage anyone that wants to read, start there because I think that's an easy way to still give you broad diversification and you can own that portfolio like we talked about with fees. And that could be a longer podcast on what I think about that. But I agree, like fees are really important because if you can pay less and still get something similar, you should absolutely do that. But fees shouldn't come at the sake of diversification. Great point. Thinking about time horizon, this is one in addition to maybe that diversification mistake that we see a lot of clients making is they're not investing to match their time horizon. I do honestly feel that probably that the uptick that's happening right now in retail brokerages and people opening these new accounts during coronavirus is probably just a lot of people have cash and maybe they want to invest it. Maybe that cash was also supposed to be set aside for maybe a shorter term goal. I tend to think we need to match money to a goal and it needs to be invested exactly that way. And if you write it down, again, a lot of what Isaiah and I talk about is you are much more likely to do something if it's written down. There's tons of studies out there that prove that with goal planning. And it's no different for financial planning and investing. But when it comes to your goals, you know, in my household over the last year or three years, my wife is in vet school. We had a goal of buying a house at some point within the first three years of her graduating. 
And so we weren't investing outside of our retirement plans because any money that we wanted was going to be going towards a down payment. And that was a short-term goal. It was less than five years. I tend to look at short-term as maybe even out to almost 10 years, depending on what it is. And so anything that we had, we were just using savings accounts and cash because we wanted to protect that for that shorter term goal. The mistakes I see a lot of people making is their kid is going to college in a couple of years and the 529 still has 80% of the money in stocks, you know, more risky investments when it probably should be flip-flopped and have more money in bonds and cash and conservative assets. But really trying to match what you're trying to invest for with the goals that match up to your financial plan. And maybe, again, you're out of school, you don't have a full financial plan yet, but you probably do have some goals that you want to check off and you should be matching your dollars to that. I think it's a great point from the standpoint of also thinking about if someone's going for student loan forgiveness and they know that they're going to have the tax bomb in the future, thinking about how do you start saving for that in the future? And I just had this conversation earlier this week. One of the ideas that you can do is you're going to want to take more risk earlier on in that investment period, but then you're going to have to get more conservative as you get closer because there isn't a, oh, well, I'll just delay it. Like you could have delayed technically buying a house if you were more aggressive and then something happened with that, like the taxes do, like you're going to be in a world of hurt if you can't cover that. So understanding how long do you have to save, make some conservative estimation around what the return is that you're going to need over that time period, and then invest accordingly. And you don't need to take more risk than needed. And if you want to be more conservative, you're probably going to have to save more. And there's not a wrong way. If you feel like you are a more conservative person, you need to save more, that's fine. One of the partners that I have and utilize, one of the tools that they offer is data points. And data points came from Dr. Sarah Fala, who was a previous guest on the podcast, uh, co-authored the book, The Next Men or Next Door with her father, Dr. Thomas Stanley. But with that, they wrote a really good blog post that was showing someone that saved 17% of their income versus someone that saved seven. But the person that saved seven was able to outperform from an investment standpoint by two and a half percent every single year for 30 years, which is incredible and would be so difficult to do. Like no one could do that over that course of time. And the amount of money that the person that saved 17% had versus the person that had better returns, but couldn't save as much was dramatic. And I know sometimes I would say, you know, advisors, we love talking about, and I certainly have been guilty as well, like talking so much about the investing piece, savings will cover up for a lot of errors. And again, Dan and I both agree with that, but I just think it's really important to understand that as well, that there's a lot of different ways to slice and dice investing. And our role and goal is to help take what we know and what we've learned and make sure that we do it accordingly. But if you're able to be able to save more and just be more conservative from that standpoint, it'll cover up any sort of error that you have if maybe you aren't as diversified as you wanted or didn't do quite the right thing. So for so many different people, I think getting started is half the battle and not getting so concerned that you don't know what's going on and you can't do it alone. Like you can, there's ways to improve it. And there's always little nuanced things that you can do a little bit better. But yeah, I think from a very high level, just being consistent with what you're trying to do and matching it to the goal that you're trying to work towards is super important. And yeah, a lot of conversations around saving for the tax bomb. Yeah, I um, may be talking a little bit more about risk and how it's paired with return or maybe not paired with return. I had a former colleague it always made me laugh just the way he said it. But I tend to agree just with how I feel about investing, how my firm feels about investing. But he used to always say risk and return are the most happily married couple there ever was, and they'll never be divorced. 
it was a bit tongue in cheek with how he said it and why he said it. But it was really trying to paint the picture that you don't have to swing for the fences with investing and that everybody has their own personal benchmark with where they're trying to go and that everything needs to be thought about going back to your financial plan and kind of the goals that were aligned there. But do you tend to fall on the same line with risk and return and that they are matching up? Or have you found that over certain periods of time or like right now, people are trying to go out and find the next greatest thing? What are your thoughts on the little tongue in cheek saying? So I go back to one of the partners I work with. His name's Corey Hofstein. He runs Newfound Research. He's talked about that the optimal investment plan is first and foremost, one that an investor can stick with. And I think that's so true. Even if you design the best, most amazing investment plan that someone can't stick with, then it's a failure. Even if you know in 30 years, they're going to make way more money and they're going to do all this stuff. But if they can't stick with it in year seven and they want to just close the books and run away and bury their head in the sand, that's not helpful. And he also is credited with saying risk cannot be destroyed. It's only transformed. So people that want to talk about, I want this with no risk. Well, there's a risk of failing fast and there's a risk of failing slow. So you can think about it that way where you don't want to be one of these people that I'm so conservative that you're going to hurt yourself longer term, but you also don't need to have the pedal of the metal all the time. I think there's certain times where it does make sense to take on more risk or less risk, depending on the market environment. And again, we're going to try to keep things 101. I have thoughts and areas where I'd maybe want to go into other details. But one key thing, and I love writing about this, I love talking about this stuff. But at the end of the day, I agree from the planning perspective, you have to align it to make sure that someone can stick with it and then plan accordingly. So if the plan is we need to make X percent each year, target that. You don't need to go and match exactly what some arbitrary benchmark did. I know that's an easy thing to say and people are like, well, it's just because you can't beat it. Well, I think that's foolish. Like it's going to be so important that you get to where you want to go that the biggest asset that anyone listening here has is their own skill set. So first and foremost, they need to invest in themselves and all those things. We've talked about practice ownership. We've done all these other things. So like the investing piece in the plan should complement that. And if you get to the point where you're in an environment where everything's going sideways, you want to make sure that your investing plan can still be successful through that. And I look at, and there's a great chart that I've, and I'll link to a post that kind of really goes into the weeds around what I think about. And there's a couple different things I've written, but there's kind of four different environments. There's think about inflation, which is just things are going to cost more in the future or deflation, which is things are going to cost less. You can have inflation growth, inflation, non-growth in the economy or deflation and non-growth and deflation and growth. So we've been in like this disinflationary growth phase for a number of years. Now that could be changing in 2020. We don't know, depending on when this is really, no one's going to know. It's all hindsight anyways. But I think it's important to have investment assets that do well in each instead of just aligning and building something out that works in one. And that's another thing that I see. We talking about home country bias and people owning so much in the United States. I think so many people are just aligned for one environment of we've seen disinflation. We've seen this boom of asset prices of stocks going up and bonds going up as well. Like, ooh, life is good. That's not always the case. And history reminds people of that all the time. And we might be going through one of those paradigm shifts right now. We don't know. I tend to believe yes. So I think it's important that people do understand, kind of get the basics right, and then also understand how they are set up for the future. But yeah, that kind of is the way that I think about risk in return. You brought up a good point, especially on inflation, because that's one area I see a lot of people who are maybe, especially right now, nervous about investing. And so they've since chosen to maybe keep money in cash. And maybe they've optimized it to where they have money in CDs or a high yield savings account. But risk isn't only on the stock side and the growth side. 
So it's not just about, hey, can this one stock skyrocket and I'm going to have tons of money or it could also fall flat and go bankrupt. It's also on the conservative side, there's risk as well. And that falls with inflation and eating away at purchasing power. And yeah, over the last 10 years, inflation hasn't been very high. And so you maybe not have noticed the effects of inflation. But over the long term, I think I had looked going back, inflation's averaged somewhere around 3% over the last 80 years or so. Different portfolios are going to be impacted for all the reasons that you said. But you need to look at your inflation adjusted return. Because yes, maybe bonds have done three, four, five percent a year, but at certain times inflation was also high. And so that real return was maybe one percent or lower. And just the impact is also going to happen from a risk standpoint, from a diversification standpoint, is also going to happen on conservative investing or not investing at all. So there's gonna be a risk and pull on every single side. Yeah. And I did write something about inflation. It's interesting because there's so many different really bright world-renowned investors that are really split on this. That's some that say we're going to see this continued deflation and others that say we're going to see inflation. So Dan and I don't know either. The way that I look at it is it shouldn't matter. It should not matter what happens. You should be prepared and have something that, again, going back to the diversification. Yes, there's going to be certain environments where broadly like stocks are not going to do as well. Like if we go through another financial crisis or depression or recession, like yes, stocks are not going to do well in that environment. But you should have other things that are going to help be some sort of a ballast to get you through that to where I mean, we haven't even really talked about rebalancing at all. But you can then rebalance out of things that have done well back into things that haven't done well. And that's really, really important. One question that I want to ask you real quick, and we'll come back to maybe rebalancing in a second, is the notion of, you know, I've heard so many different people like, I'm young, stocks for the long run, should I be 100% in stocks? Like, what's your thought of that? Do you agree or disagree? I think... It's going to be different for everybody just because it comes back to being able to sleep at night and also really what you're going for. I think there are a few studies out there that say going 100% in stocks actually isn't the long-term outperformer. I think there's a few studies that say maybe going 90% is actually optimal. I haven't read it in full detail to really explain the reasoning, but when you're looking at different types of accounts, retirement accounts, regular brokerage accounts, For investments that are for long-term goals, 10 plus years out, and it goes exactly to what you're saying, and you should be constructing your investments for really all types of situations because we don't know what's going to happen over the short run. We do know on average what's going to happen in longer-term periods. I think we've talked about this before, but Morgan Housel wrote an article about a month ago about economics and behavioral things with investing and how people react. And he had a sentence just about, assume the world was going to break once or twice a decade. And he's talking more economically, but the stock market tends to follow a similar schedule in that sense. And so when coming up with an investing plan, it's looking with a long-term view. It's going to go through those inflationary periods as non-inflationary periods. And so for young people, I think the general recommendation of being heavier weighting in stocks is great because you have that room to take risk. But I don't think you have to go 100% in stocks. One, because it's going to be a bumpy ride, like right now. So It's been a rough quarter and a half for anybody who's been invested in stocks. So I think finding what is going to be the most comfortable position for you, and maybe that's somewhere between 70% and 100%, I don't think there's anything wrong with not going all stock. Yeah, I totally agree. A famous investor that I always think his quotes are kind of snarky, but also funny is Cliff Asnes from AQR. And he had the quote that you're a bigger wuss than you think you are. So you may think you're super aggressive and you're fine with handling whatever. And then when it happens, you're like, "Mm, I don't like this as much. So 
I completely agree on the rebalancing piece because that was kind of the other thing that got brought up. I think is important. When do people rebalance? How do you think about rebalancing? Any suggestions or tips or thoughts there? Yeah, coming up with a, s- a set schedule, I think, is one of the most simple things you can do, and also one of the most beneficial things you can do. Obviously, like you said, as you get more into investing, or if you hire a financial planner and, and they're helping you with investing, you will continue to refine this process and the way you go about it. But there are a lot of studies that show if you rebalance more than maybe twice a year, you actually start to hinder your return just because you tend to do things out of emotion instead of out of a process and a schedule. So I would come up with a schedule, maybe once a year, twice a year. Obviously, there's going to be some unforeseen circumstances that occasionally happen, like a downturn due to a pandemic that might make you start that rebalancing maybe a few months earlier than you had planned. But in our firm, we've chosen a semi-annual schedule. And this applies to my accounts as well. We've chosen with April and then with October to rebalance client accounts. And what does rebalancing mean for us? It's we review accounts and maybe you want to have 60% of your money in stocks, 40% in bonds. We look at it as if your total mix there is going to be off by more than 3 to 5%, that's going to trigger us to say, hey, should we go in here and should we rebalance? And by rebalancing, all it just means is getting back to that target weight of 60% and 40%. And it's not always the best decision to rebalance. We may say it wasn't the market. Maybe they added more cash because they have a expense coming up. For whatever reason, we need to talk through with our client or with yourself about why you are off target. And then from there, just coming up with a system to get back to it. Uh, And that's why I always preach as advisors, we tend to have investment policy statements for clients. And, you know, again, going back to a medical, a very scientific way of approaching investing, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And this is kind of the evidence that has brought us to this point and doing the same thing with rebalancing. But do you take a similar approach? A little bit different, but I want to touch on what you just talked about there at the end with an investment policy statement or an IPS as a lot of times it's called. I've seen different polls. I know like White Coat Investor even put one out and I've seen from a couple different people in investing land that I follow. It seems like 60 to 70% of people don't have any sort of written investment plan, which we were joking before we hit record about different people deciding to buy airlines or cruise lines or any sort of stock that's been beaten up. And it's like an IPS will help avoid those bad behaviors because you're going to say, where does it tell me to buy Delta in here? Like it doesn't, it doesn't tell me to buy Delta. And I think that's important where that IPS can then help you understand when you're going to rebalance, why you're going to rebalance and answer some of those different questions. And I'll revert back to uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby and his book, The Behavioral Investor. Again, highlight, I've talked about it twice. I think it's a really good read. It can get a little more in depth, but it's more around the psychology of investing. He has a really good quote on one of the pages that talks about the research is unequivocal. If you're using human judgment instead of a process to make investment decisions, you're doing more work for diminished results. I think that is such a profound quote of if you can try to automate some of the decisions, humans on average make 35,000 decisions a day. You don't need to make another decision on when to rebalance or what to do, what stock to buy or what's your allocation. I think you can make some of those thoughts and reviews once a year, twice a year, whatever it is that you need to do more often, if you really enjoy it, that's fine. Again, if you work with someone, they're likely going to be doing it a lot more often, but keeping it simple. Yeah. Just try to make some sort of schedule from a rebalancing standpoint. There's a lot of like nerdy research that's been done that is even over my head that I'm like, well, this is interesting where it's made me rethink rebalancing. But for the most part, I do rebalancing from the standpoint of triggered rebalancing, which is like, let's say I own something that's 5%. 
50% trigger where if it's down less than two and a half percent, I would buy more. If it's over seven and a half percent, then I would sell it and get back to five. And anything but in between that doesn't matter. If it's 4%, I'm going to let it go. If it's 6%, I'm going to let it go. So it kind of has that range. That's kind of the way that I've thought about it, where it makes it easier. It's a little bit more hands-on than what you talked about from the standpoint of I'm going to do it semi-annually or annually or quarterly, where that can make it easier for someone. Because with this, you'd want to have to, I mean, are you going to check it every quarter? Are you going to check it every week? So it depends on how much hands-on you want to have. Is it going to make a massive, massive difference? Perhaps, but most likely not. Most likely it's not going to make or break. Are you going to be able to retire? Are you going to be ahead of your goals? How you rebalance? So again, there's nuance and you can pick apart and you can throw little stats that make more or less sense for why you do something. But yeah, if we're going to keep this from a more of a one-on-one perspective, I would encourage someone pick time, make it set in a schedule and then just do it. Say, hey, I'm going to do it on this date at this time. I'm going to do it every single year. Boom, boom, boom. And just the consistency will really, really help you. Yeah. And to clarify, while I say doing it twice a year, that's really when you should go in at least and formally review it. If you are actively taking control of your financial picture or you have an advisor that's doing so, more than likely, you're probably talking money with your advisor a little bit more than twice a year. At least you should be not just investing, but obviously everything else. But most advisors are probably at least looking at client accounts on a monthly basis, not to just trade to look busy, but they're just obviously reviewing everything when markets are doing well. And like you said, you go out of that band. For our firm, it's that 3 to 5%. For your firm, it's going up to 7%. That's going to automatically trigger us to say, hey, we need to look at this. And are we getting a little too risky? Or, hey, we're underweight. But that twice a year just really forces you to the table to at least look at it in those off periods. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. And again, there is, we talked about from the top, there's a lot of nuance to it. Again, for me, global market portfolio is kind of the basis of where to start. There are additional things that I do that I personally invest that way, but then take other steps to hopefully add more benefit for myself and clients. I invest the same way as clients do. I think that's super important. I know Dan and you and your firm do the same thing. Like again, going back to my recipe, you got to eat your own cooking. Like if you believe in it and you're going to tell someone else that they should invest the same way, you should be putting your money right alongside that. So that's always a good question also to ask and make sure like if someone's giving you advice or guidance, are they doing the same thing? And again, always bring it back to does it have some sort of evidence that's supported for why they're doing something? And not that you need to have them bring out stacks and stacks of research reports and stuff and throw it at you to make themselves look smart. But if they can just explain why this works and why it does well and help understand that. And as you continue to educate yourself, for me, I always enjoy having conversations with clients if they do feel more confident and are more educated because it makes the conversations more fun. So most advisors are not going to be afraid of someone that is challenging, like, why are we doing this and wanting to learn? You should want to know. And it's your money. So you should absolutely understand why decisions are being made. And if you don't feel comfortable, you definitely need to speak up. I do think on that note, I talk about this with my wife all the time. As a veterinarian, when she's talking with a client, if she can explain it in the most simple of terms to where me with no medical training whatsoever can understand it, she has done a really good job on her part of explaining a really complex subject in a simple way. We look at the same thing with investing. Obviously, there's very elementary ways to look at investing. There's very complex ways to look at investing and also to talk about it. And so, yeah, like if this is something that interests you, don't be afraid to ask if you have an advisor complex questions. Because one, it's probably easier for the advisor to answer them because they're used to talking with their colleagues. 
in complex manner. I hear my wife talking with her colleagues, you know, when they come over for a wine night about cases they've seen, and it sounds like a foreign language. And so if you have an advisor, same goes on really any subject. But like, if you do have questions, always ask. And especially on investing, because there's so many nuances, I really don't think there's a dumb question because there's also a way to challenge almost every question and every answer in investing. So really just feel confident in asking questions. And there's a ton of different ways to find success in investing. There's core things that make a difference. But one thing that I didn't talk about at the beginning is 90% of your returns are the asset allocation and 10% is typically the manager. So like going and trying to find the next Warren Buffett, because I'm sure most people kind of know who that is. But finding a superstar stock picker is less important than getting the allocation of do I own stocks or bonds or international or US. Like Those decisions are much more impactful to you than trying to pick a fund or, or something different. And I think that is something that really, really needs to be told more, which isn't because there's so much money designed to tell you differently. I keep thinking of other things that I would want to talk about, but maybe this is something we'll see feedback from the episode. And if there's more desire to get more into the weeds, we can certainly tackle certain topics. By all means, reach out, let Dan or I know what you'd like to hear more. But any closing thoughts that you have on kind of this investing 101 that we're starting to go down? Investing is really a never-ending subject matter of learning. You can be an investor or a professional investor like Isaiah and I for years and years, and you will always be learning new things and seeing new things. We've never been through a pandemic-induced market recession, and here we are. And so don't feel overwhelmed or don't feel alone that you feel overwhelmed as you get started in investing because there are a lot of nuances there's a lot to learn, ask questions, read. There are tons of great books that are out there that talk about the behavioral side, the numbers side of things, books that are even specific to certain professions when it comes to investing. But don't be afraid with information overload because everybody is going to go through that same feeling. Yep. No, I agree. Is there any book that is top of mind that's a favorite of yours that you would recommend? I think I kind of gave mine away with Crosby, but any thoughts? Yeah, my go-tos are usually Daniel Crosby. He has the Laws of Wealth. That's a really good one. That was one of the first ones that I picked up out of college. It was such a simple way to think about investing. And then also just from a behavioral side, because he does a really good job of relating it to non-investing topics. But that one, The Richest Man in Babylon is kind of a an age-old classic that people love to read. But from there, The Next Millionaire Next Door is a great one. Again, Sarah Flaw and everything that they've done. So there's great ones. We can link to some books in the notes as well as obviously blogs. But what about you, Isaiah? I've never read The Richest Man in Babylon, actually, but all the other ones are great. I tend to read a lot of things that maybe aren't necessarily books that are more white papers that are probably getting too far into the weeds. I would start with those. And then if you find them enjoyable, there's certainly more that you can dig into. But that's where I would start. And I think there's a lot of good information in that from that standpoint. So... With that, we'll close up. I think one of the biggest things that we touched on is trying to have a process, have it written down and limit the amount of emotional decisions that you have to make that will help. And then just eliminate some of the basic things that trouble and trip up a lot of people, which is paying way too much for stuff that you can get for far less and being diversified and not being too concentrated in any one particular geographic area. So with that, let us know what you think and uh, look forward to uh, chatting again soon, Dan. Great. Thanks, Isaiah.
Thanks for listening to today's show. All comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is the founder of ID Financial Planning and Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor in the state of Indiana. Dan Routh is employed by Old Peak Finance and is a registered investment advisor in the state of North Carolina. The biggest compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is predominantly the platform that is how people listen to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us an honest rating and review. That will help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information and insights and have the ability for your voice to be heard, join the private Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the Veterinary Success Podcast.com. Scroll to the bottom section where it says about your host and click on the Facebook icon. Then I can let you join the group and would love to hear from you there. Thanks for listening. and I'll be talking again to you soon.